1: I have a really great interview to share with you guys today. So I'm chatting with Megan Robertson, who is an SLP and BCBA, and we are actually talking about the sensory pyramid. You might be thinking, why are two BCBAs talking about the sensory pyramid? Well, as Megan is going to explain to us, understanding and having this shift in mindset about the sensory function of behavior, how complex it is, how important it is, and how much we need to utilize our OTs can really transform the way we approach behavior and encourage positive behavior change. So I'm going to let Megan do all the explaining, and we're going to jump right away into this conversation. If you are not driving or walking right now, I will get out a notebook because there's going to be a lot of great notes you want to take. Megan is also sharing an amazing download that will be in the show notes as well is a bunch of additional resources if you want to learn more. But as we talk about, this isn't a topic that we often get a lot of training about if you are a behavior analyst or in the ABA field or even as a teacher, but it's going to impact so many of your students or clients or your own kids. So let's go ahead and jump in. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited.
1: I am really excited about this topic. Today, we're going to talk about the sensory pyramid, which, as you and I were just chatting about, the whole sensory function of behavior is not something we talk about that much as behavior analysts.
2: That's exactly how I felt kind of coming into the field. Um, We learn about, you know, access and attention and escape and sensory, and then we don't really hear much more about it after that. So it was something that I really wanted to learn more about as a BCBA.
1: That's great, and I love. I want to hear a little bit about your background because I know you are an SLP and a BCBA, and I am always jealous when people have both.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I started in in the field as a speech therapist. Um, loved my job. Loved working with the kids I was working with. Ended up getting a lot of kids with autism, um, and I just felt that that was kind of my home, and was having a lot of behavior issues in my clinic where I was working at the time. And one of my colleagues said, you know, I'm going to ABA school, it might be something you're interested in. So I pursued it just to be a more effective SLP and ended up really falling in love with the field. I would have moms come in and their child had just had a meltdown at the grocery store. And so then my speech therapy session was really ineffective. And I realized I want to be at that grocery store with that mom, helping her work through these daily issues that she's having. And then also being able to do some skill building work in the home with mom where it's going to be most effective because they're in their most comfortable setting. So transitioned into ABA after that um, and just have absolutely loved my experiences in both.
1: I love that. And I love that you get to view, you know, the whole child and see behavior and communication as this like interwoven web, which we all know that it is.
2: It is. Isn't that the truth?
1: Awesome. Okay, so let's jump into this topic because it's it's really good and I know we have a lot to cover. So let's go back. We you know, we know about the functions of behavior, and as you said, we spend a lot of time talking about access to tangibles and attention and escape and all these different strategies. And we get to that sensory component and we're like, or it could be sensory, period. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) So when we're looking at an FBA, we look at these four functions, right? And first of all, I have to say our four functions that we look at, and you mentioned that I do try to see the whole child. These four functions completely exclude other contributing factors. So we also always rule out medical issues, uh, medication impact, past trauma, there could be attachment disorders or other factors that we may or may not know about that could be contributing to the behavior. So it's also imperative that we get a really good, accurate and detailed case history and reach out to other professionals who may wanna shed some light on the other things that we find in that case history. Um, because at the end of the day, these four functions, yes, they're super impactful to behavior, but it may not be the whole story.
1: Mm -hmm. So true.
2: So sensory, (laughs) we get to sensory and I always tell my staff, um, I have a small company of just BCBAs and I tell them, I know you guys get it. I know that you understand the process of the FBA and everything, but we don't really learn a lot about sensory. It tends to be kind of that elusive Ooh, What do we do? I don't know. So common examples of this and the things that I even looked back through my notes and went to see, okay, what were the ways that I was taught what this looks like? A child might be covering their ears in response to a loud noise. They might be spinning the wheels of their toy cars or rocking back and forth in their chair. Um, we might look at this and say, okay, it, it's happening to meet some sensory need or take away or remove some sensory aversion. And that's kind of where our training stops. But the behavior may also occur because the child has innate sensory processing differences. And this is where I usually lose people. My OTs <laughs> in the world get really excited when I talk about this <laughs> because they think, oh, wow, you're kind of coming over to our side and you're you're trying to learn some of this from that OT perspective. But sensory processing differences is so often overlooked because as BCBAs and other ABA professionals, we're simply not taught that it even exists. Um, so that's what we're going to look into more today.
1: Yes. This is, I think, going to be a, a good learning experience for you know, teachers, parents, BCBAs, RBTs to hear about this from this perspective but also from from a BCBA. So you're utilizing this within within your work and when you're teaching staff members and working with kids.
2: Yes, absolutely. So when we're looking at that sensory function in most programs we're not really trained on what to do, we might try providing replacement behavior that is, you know, quote appropriate uh, we might try to redirect the child back to the task that they've been given. We might try to use some response blocking to stop it from happening, extinction. We might give them a specific time or place. We could try all of these behavior-based strategies. But I always tell myself we're not going to do any of these. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And I say, <laughs> first, we're going to call on our occupational therapist. We're going to call on our OTs. I had two amazing mentors, Corey Yates and Am- Emily Vaught, who they are the reason I understand sensory processing the way I do today, and it it's only because I reached out to them for help. Um, so you have to call on your OTs. You have to have that collaborative piece. So if you feel like your child or your student or your client may have some sensory processing differences as we go through kind of a list that we'll go through in a minute that might be impacting their behavior, or just their ability to function through daily activities, we have to reach out to an OT. Um, Ultimately, collaboration is key in working with these kids. And we're not trained to diagnose or treat sensory differences or sensory processing. It's good that we are aware of the impact of sensory processing on behavior because that's often our our primary observable feature of this Mm -hmm. underlying issue. Um, But at the end of the day, we have to be able to provide appropriate referrals to OT and we're going to learn about sensory differences and sensory processing so that we can understand their recommendations and incorporate those into our practice of ABA for that specific child. That
1: advice is just huge. And you could have replaced OT with, you know, like you said earlier, like we want to reach out to someone that specializes in trauma or we want to reach out to an SLP or a social worker or someone like that. But we we need to collaborate more. And I I see this as, personally, I see this as, such a struggle of the ABA field in general that, you know, we get too excited that we think we know all the answers and we don't.
2: Yeah. Well, and we're taught that behavior is is anything. So in a lot of ways, we do feel like, oh, wow, feeding, I can do that. Walking, <laughs> I can do that. I mean, I've yeah. heard so many things that, that BCBA. So, oh yeah, we can work on that. We can try and work on that. And yes, you may have some success doing it, but there are also professionals who did as much schooling or maybe even more schooling that you did in those specific areas where it's not yes. just the general behavior, but they know exactly how to teach each child how to do that exact task that you're working on. So why wouldn't we reach out to them for help?
1: Exactly. I, I honestly use that exact same phrase when I used to teach practicum to graduate students is when you are at a, at a team meeting at, you know, an IEP meeting, whatever you're at, and you're sitting with an OT, an SLP, a social worker, those people, exactly, they went to just as much school as you did. They have just as much debt. Don't worry. And they are specialized in this. So yeah, why not reach out to them? And, and as an, as a teacher too, you know, feel comfortable asking for help. That's just, I think a hard skill sometimes as an adult. But, you know, these are resources that we have in our schools and our clinics that, that we
2: should utilize. Absolutely. I still hold my speech, uh, speech language pathologist. I always call myself speech therapist. I still hold that license. One of our other BCBAs on our team still holds her special education teaching license. Yet we recognize that in our capacity, we're working as the BCBA and I will still reach out to speech therapists for help. And she will still reach out to educators and teachers for help because we have to recognize that two brains are better than one, two plans are better than one, and collaboration is key.
1: Yes. So, so, so true. We could talk, we could talk about this. I know. Lot, but let's go back. <laughs> Going off on a tangent here. But it's such a good point. Okay. So let's talk about sensory processing. Yes.
2: Yeah, so the first question I get is, what are you talking about? What is sensory processing? So when we look at sensory processing, it's a couple of steps. So first we take in sensory stimuli. It might be a smell or a certain noise or a texture. And then our brain and our body interpret that information. And our body decides if it's pleasant or harmful, safe or dangerous. And then we determine how to respond. So an example of this would might be we smell food, it smells really rotten, and then we don't eat it. Or someone grabs us in a way that now we feel threatened and we try to run away. Those are typical and appropriate responses to the sensory stimuli that we're receiving. Sensory processing d- disorder, which is often referred to as just SPD, it occurs when a child's not able to process those three steps appropriately, and they might feel either threatened or unsafe or other in otherwise normal situations, or they may not even feel or notice things that most people notice. Um, They frequently do not know how to effectively meet their own sensory needs. And that's a big part of where sensory differences, where I might not like a certain type of clothing or I might not like a certain type of food, not a big deal. I just don't, I don't eat that food. I don't wear those clothes. Mm -hmm. But with children or adults with sensory processing disorder, they have a really hard time figuring out how to meet their own sensory needs when those needs exist.
1: Yes. I'm sure everyone listening is like, oh my God, I have a kid. I can picture this happening right now with this child or this student.
2: Yes. And the incidence of sensory processing disorder, this is uh, put on by the Star Institute. They do a number of studies. They've got a lot of information as well. But their most recent study said that 75% of children with autism have significant symptoms of SPD, whether they're diagnosed with it or not. I think sometimes uh, our sensory differences can be put into that section under the diagnostic criteria of autism, but we're not recognizing that it also is its own issue as well. Um, and it's also estimated that 40 to 60% of children with ADHD have some SPD as well. So the the main thing that I, and I tell my staff and I tell my families this all the time, most individuals with sensory processing disorder do not have autism. And in addition to that, Most individuals who have sensory differences are just everybody. Yeah. (laughs) All of us have sensory differences. Yes. Everyone has some type of aversion to a texture or a noise. I always use the instance of nails on a chalkboard. Now, most people are really aversive to that. That is a sensory difference. Now, across the board, most people might kind of feel the same way, but that's something that's not threatening. It is not unsafe, but for whatever reason, our bodies interpret that as, oh, that is awful. We are going to run <laughs> away, hightail it out of there when we hear that noise.
1: You know what I was thinking as you were talking about this and like everyone has this, the the. um on our oven, on our stove, the like filter that you turn on, or what's that called? That when you're cooking something, you got to put the air on that noise drives me insane. Like the vent, that's what it is. And it's cause it's loud and it's like kind of like white noise. And I'm really bad about turning it on because I, I don't want to hear that noise. But my husband on the other hand could leave it on for seven hours and not notice it's on. And I'm like, turn that off. Why is that on?
2: Off? <laughs> It's the reason that some of those white noise machines are so soothing to some people, and other people cannot sleep if there's a single sound happening yeah. in the room. And, you know, True. we all have these differences. It only really becomes a concern if it's impacting your ability or your child's ability to function in daily activities. And that's where we tend to make that uh, distinction. Um, True. So the question is then why is this important? Sensory <laughs> yeah. processing allows us to recognize and interpret. What's going on around us? It helps us to move our bodies in coordinated ways and ultimately helps us participate in social, academic, and just daily activities. Um, In ABA, we usually only look at sensory as a fringe component of our treatment planning, which we kind of talked about before. Um, But if we imagine a pyramid, and this is where I'm going to get into the pyramid of learning, um, I think we're going to potentially have it um, also as. something that your listeners can look up. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. yeah, I'll share all the resources. Fantastic.
2: So the pyramid of learning, it is just the most amazing thing. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're going to look at is the very, very top of the pyramid is academic learning, daily activities, and behavior. These are the things that typically in the field of ABA that we would be focusing on. They're having behavior issues, they're having issues in school, they're having issues participating in daily activities. That's the very top of the pyramid. But the very bottom of the pyramid is our central nervous system, which includes all of the sensory systems. So visual, auditory, we're going to look into other ones with big words. But these are the <laughs> things that maybe we might not be looking at initially. We're only looking at the top of the pyramid. But if we don't look at the base of the pyramid, we're missing the whole foundation. So that's the pyramid of learning. It was originally published by Taylor and Trot, And I know if your listeners Google it or if anyone Googles it, there are a couple of other places that it was published, but I wanted to give the proper credits there. Um, so that's the The bottom line is we want to make sure that we're looking at sensory as the foundation. ABA tends to be a top-down approach, and if our child's foundation is all out of whack, we cannot expect them to behave in an expected or typical way that is functional for their daily activities.
1: Yeah, that makes
2: sense. So we're going to look at the eight senses. I explained a minute ago that those make up the bottom of that pyramid of learning, or as we often call it, the sensory pyramid. So within sensory modulation, there's a continuum of sensitivity for each sense. So a child may be over-responsive, and that can result in sensory avoiding. Some of these, for, for us and for our listeners, may start to sound familiar. They might have extreme reactions to otherwise pretty mild stimuli. They might be... Uh, feeling overwhelmed by just everyday situations. They might feel anxious or defensive or experience a fight or flight response. So those are children who would be over-responsive to a certain sense. They could also be under-responsive. So in these situations, they might not notice changes in the environment or they might have a really delayed response to those. They could seem distracted, withdrawn, or even clumsy. I know we have, well, a couple of past clients and then a couple of my own kids have different, Mm -hmm. they are over-responsive to some senses and then under-responsive to others. And you can definitely see it where one child becomes in that fight or flight mode because he doesn't like certain touches or he's afraid of certain noises, but then the other one is so super clumsy. And again, it could be sensory differences, it could be sensory processing disorder. So we're always gonna look at that to see how well they're adapting to their differences. So the last response that a child might have to sensory stimuli is sensory craving or sensory seeking. So this child may have low impulse control, they might be moving constantly, Fidgeting, crashing, bumping, or fiddling with objects. These are often associated with ADHD or ADD. And these are the kids who are constantly touching their friends (laughs) and they like those big squeezes and big hugs and always want to swing the highest on the playground or climb the fence that they're not supposed to climb Mm -hmm. because they're (laughs) just looking for that sensory input. Um, And so we talked about a child could be too sensitive to one, but not sensitive enough to another. That This is me, and I do do not like messy play. I don't like slime. I don't want to (laughs) do therapy activities where you you pull the guts out of a pumpkin. That is disgusting. And (laughs) I am not sensitive enough to movement and vestibular input. We'll talk about our vestibular sense. It's our sense of balance. I can spin forever, and I never get dizzy. So you can be kind of on the continuum on either side in any one of these senses. Yeah, it's so
1: interesting as you go into these examples, even with your, you know, yourself or your own kids, and kind of the different ways that you can approach, you know, sensory modulation. It it's so much more complex than that initial like, oh, sensory function. You know, like it's it's interesting to think about, you know, how how deep you can go into this topic.
2: Oh my goodness! It once you dive in, it becomes just this big black hole of information. But I think it's one of those things that once you kind of get an idea of what could be happening it really becomes like a light bulb moment. I had one of my staff recently realize that one of her clients was sensory seeking for movement, always wanted to jump on the trampoline, always wanted to spin and roll across the floor to the point where it would almost get him overstimulated, which can happen depending on the type of movement. But then when she would sit him down to do a written activity, he had the hardest time. And it was this light bulb moment that when she realized he was overly sensitive to all of the visual stimuli on the page it was too many words. So mm-hmm. he was having the hardest time getting through his work because he just kept looking away and looking away. and so when she made some modifications to where he could only see a few lines of the page, oh my goodness, how belie- how you know unbelievable. We don't need visual schedules, we don't need token <laughs> economies. We just needed to decrease the amount of information on the page, and now he does fantastic. And so it really is once you kind of start to look at each of our our clients, or our own children, or our students under the lens of sensory processing. It's really, really amazing that you know, with a couple of antecedent strategies or things that we're more aware of, we may be able to get rid of some of these difficult behaviors or struggles that the children are having without doing any quote behavior type of. Um, strategies. And it's such a great support for them because not only are we helping them, we're helping the family, we're helping the teachers, but we're also giving the children some great tools that they can use forever and ever and ever and ever to help their own sensory processing.
1: Yeah. And it's going to be something that has a real, a real change. You know, when you're, when you're talking, explaining the sensory craving and sensory seeking, I'm sure everyone can kind of visualize like, you know, any kid in any classroom and, you know, anywhere that there are kids that are just fidgeting and moving and they can't sit still. And so often traditional classroom management systems will focus on, you know, maybe a punishment based approach of constantly saying quiet hands to someone who is craving some type of sensory input is not going to be effective and might actually cause other behaviors to occur. So by kind of switching your perspective here, you're going to really have such a major impact on, you know, the effective of the whole class.
2: Exactly. And that's, again, where we really have to lean on our occupational therapists with regard to these sensory recommendations. As I go through each sensory system that is also at the bottom of that pyramid, when you look at the visual... We're going to talk about signs of possible problems and also some recommendations. And these are the things that we may not want to be trying on our own because we are not OTs. And if you are listening and you're an OT, then kudos, you can go to town. But (laughs) we want to make sure that we're utilizing strategies that are really, really specific to our particular client, child, or student that we're working with and not just go out on our own trying a bunch of different things that may be beneficial or may not be beneficial to that child.
1: Yes. Great advice. Okay. So we're going to go through the eight senses and you've also are sharing a great download with us, right?
2: Yes. So in our download that we're going to be putting out for listeners, we're going to go through each of the senses, different signs of a possible problem, which I'll go through a couple of those today. And then what the OT may recommend. Now, again, your occupational therapist should, and hopefully will have tons more recommendations, but these are just some of the basics that I feel like are either most prevalent, most common, or things that can be just the easiest to do in a classroom or home environment. Great. Okay, so the first sense that we're going to talk about is our sense of hearing, which is our auditory system. So auditory, uh, our auditory system allows us to map out the environment, space, and time. So signs of a possible problem within that system could be that the child has a physical response to noise. This is all of us with nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> um, they might have a lot of difficulty focusing on tasks when there's background noise present. This can be really prevalent in the classroom environment. And they may not respond to their name. I know- we talk about this a lot with my staff because they're saying, oh, he has a hard time responding to his name and I've tried this and I've tried that. He may not hear it. He may not be able to orient where it's coming from. He might hear it, but has no clue where that noise just came from. Or he heard it and knew where it was coming from but didn't recognize that it was his name that is all a part of sensory processing within the auditory system um the child might also ask repeated directions so that may come across as oh they're not listening they're not following directions if your child is saying huh or what? A bunch of times it may be an issue with the auditory system and how it's processing information. So with these kids, the OT may recommend noise-reducing headphones. You might put on some preferred music during tasks or preferential seating in the classroom or in the home during specific tasks. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. So the next one is our sense of sight, which is our visual system. So this includes eye movements, but it also includes sensory perception, how we're viewing the world, what, how we're obtaining that information. And this information is sent to 80% of the brain. So I think oftentimes we can kind of dismiss vision and not really look at that as such a big deal. But it is sent to 80% of the brain, which means it is a huge factor in all of our processing. So signs of a possible problem with vision could be that the child's frequently rubbing their eyes. I know with our kids, if we're doing some visual skills, and if I'm really, really working on the thing that I want to be working on and it's, it's working, I see them rubbing their eyes. And that's usually when I'll consider, okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to do one more. But I always take that as a sign that, okay, I'm really, really working their eyes and their eye muscles really hard. Um, it could also be poor eye contact. So this could be with or without emotional distress. Some of our kids can maintain or initiate eye contact when they're not under distress and then others when they do have some kind of emotional distress going on, that eye contact completely flies out the window. So we want to make sure that we're also paying attention to that emotional piece as well. Um, they could seek intense visual input. These would be the kids who are holding those lights really close to their eyes or looking out the sides of their eyes because it just it gives you a different perspective when you're looking at the TV out the sides of your eyes. Um, and they might also have difficulty copying from the board. So that's where even though it's... Uh, listed early on our auditory system as a recommendation, you could also put this in the visual system. Maybe if they're closer to the board they're not going to be distracted by all of their classmates moving around and fiddling with pencils and things that their eyes are also paying attention to. So the OT might recommend um, compression, they might recommend light up toys, they might recommend light, I'm sorry, compression is on my neck and I apologize for that. They might recommend light up toys, light changing toys, anything that the child can focus on for a few minutes and then maybe give the body that amount of stimulation that they're then going to be able to focus on the task or participate in some kind of verbal or vocal exchange that you have for them.
1: I think about like the screen fatigue that we are all having in the past 10 months, you know, how often we are in front of a screen, whether it's for work, for pleasure, that like I know myself sometimes, like I can tell that it's now overwhelming. Like I can't stare at a screen anymore.
2: Yes. I think some of our kids are that way too, where you may have a child leave virtual school for the day and just be zonked out and exhausted. And then you might have another who either it was too much or too little. And now their body is just the way it's responding is I have to go run outside and run 50 laps. I need to go to the park. And (laughs) I, you know, they're bouncing off the walls and it's just the way that our bodies respond to that visual input.
1: Yeah. Whole mess right
2: now. (laughs) I I think we all are to an extent. Um, this virtual stuff is hard. It really is, is. And for so many different reasons. So well,
1: we could probably align each one of these to challenges with virtual learning. But that, maybe that'll have to be another podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: So the next system is smell and taste. I'm going to lump these together. So the olfactory and gustatory systems. Signs of a possible problem within these could be a strong behavioral or emotional response to smells or tastes. So this could be a positive or a negative response. I had a friend who used to love the smell of gasoline And her husband's dirty shoes and socks. I will not say her name, but she would probably be okay with it. Um, These kids might also eat inappropriate non-food items like metal or rock or something along those lines where they're looking for that uh, input in their mouths and they want to chew, they want to taste They might love extra spicy foods. They might love only bland foods that are all one color and texture. I know a lot of our kids like those brown, tan, orange, goldfish, cracker, pasta kind of foods. Um, And the thought behind this is that, okay, a goldfish always tastes the same. It always smells the same. It always feels the same in our mouth. It is not gonna change. And so they know what is going to happen in their mouth before they put that goldfish in their mouth. Whereas if you give them an orange piece of cheese or even another color, an orange that is a fruit, it could taste different than the one they had yesterday. It could have a different texture. It could be a little bit sour. It could be cold or warm. Um, so all of that comes back to olfactory and gustatory systems. So in these situations in OTAI, an OT who has a child who is really, really craving those sensations might recommend spicy or sour foods. I know one of our OTs I mentioned earlier, Corey Yates, she would always have the sour candy spray. I think she would get it from, you know, like the, the fast or the uh, corner market store or the convenience store. They would always have those things up on the counter and she loved it. I do not like sour. I am so aversive <laughs> to sour, but she would always have those for her kids and it was so helpful. You might use chewing gum, which is such a great thing that adults can use for the rest of their lives if that's a good uh, strategy for that child. Um, Also scented items or oils I know are very popular. And then chewing items. I've got one client who chews on his pen every time we give him a pencil, a marker, a crayon, anything like that that is a writing instrument. If he is not actively writing on his paper, that thing goes right into his mouth and he will eat it. And so we got online, found a chewy pencil topper, put that on the the end of his pencil or marker, and now he no longer chews any of his items. Such an easy thing for us to do. It costs maybe seven or eight dollars, and we no longer have that, quote, you know, inappropriate or undesired behavior of chewing his, his writing utensils. We just gave him something else. And again, he can have that on his pencils at home or wherever he is, forever. It's such a great strategy that a, a child can really use into adulthood as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one is the tactile system. This is how we interpret the information that we get from our skin. So maybe pain, temperature, texture, or even itchiness. So signs of a possible problem within the tactile system could be no awareness of personal space. These are the kids who get really, really close to you and don't really (laughs) recognize that it might be a little bit awkward. Um, Or they could just love all those tight squeezes and hugs. Um, An aversion to messy play. They may avoid avoid hygiene routines. I know this can be really common as, especially as our kids move into adolescence, they might be constantly touching things or touching their friends. Uh, And they could also be mouthing non-food objects. This again, kind of works with the taste sense, that tactile system. If it just feels good, if it's extra crunchy, that can also be involved. Um, And then we have quite a number of kids who have either reduced or exaggerated reactions to fall. So I worked with, um, a a youngster who was probably three or four. And every time he would fall down, the mom would say, Oh, he's so dramatic. And so I tried to change her wording. Okay. I know that it seems very dramatic and I understand, but I think he just feels things very big. He has really big emotions when he has a bump or a fall and it doesn't feel too big for him that feels like the appropriate response to him so let's see if we can work through that rather than just dismissing it all together that this is his Genuine response to when he falls down, um, and so that those types of conversations can really, really be beneficial um, in those situations where parents kind of or teachers have kind of a preconceived notion of what's happening. And then, of course, you have your kids who fall and have no idea, and then they have a cut on their leg or an adult. <laughs> this happens a lot as well. You'll find an adult who, oh man, how how why am I bleeding? And they have no idea because they have reduced sense of that tactile system. So, an OT may recommend a brushing program, um, which really has to be done over uh, under OT supervision. This is where our compression clothing comes in. They might use weighted blankets, which are right now all the rage, which I absolutely love. I know,
1: they're cool now. I know, <laughs> it's
2: not a, a thing, it's not a sensory thing anymore. It's just that everyone understands that weighted blankets really do help calm our, our sensory systems. Yeah. Um, and then vibrating toys or sensory bins. A lot of kids will have messy play or. Rice, beans, those types of things are great for kids who are seeking that tactile input as well.
1: Great suggestion.
2: So we're going into our last three. These last three are probably the most unknown or unfamiliar to most clinicians or teachers or parents. But these three actually have the most impact when we're looking at overall emotional regulation, and sensory regulation. So the first one we're gonna look at is internal organ sensation. It's called interoception. And this would be your internal sensations such as feeling hungry or full, having bowel and bladder awareness, internal pain, Uh, having a fever temperature, or that awake asleep cycle. So signs of a possible problem when it comes to interoception could be decreased awareness of bladder fullness or frequent accidents. We've got a little one right now. I just don't think he knows when he has to go to the bathroom until he's wet. And so it's not that he's not paying attention. It's not that he's doing it to make mom mad or anything. He just can't tell that his bladder is full until his pants start to feel wet and then his tactile system kicks in. So, this is 100% my two-year-old that you're talking about right now. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, it could be overeating or never getting full. So one of my sons never gets full. He will eat and eat and eat and eat. And it's the hardest thing, too, to tell your child nobody, we're all done. But I recognize that his little belly will just keep getting bigger and bigger. And it's not that he's necessarily hungry. It's just that he doesn't recognize that he's full. And Food tastes good, and it's it's very fulfilling, and it makes you feel happy and all that. So, that could be a part of uh, interoception as well. You might have decreased pain awareness, or you might be overly sensitive to pain, which I think also kind of comes into play with your tactile system, which we just talk, talked about the bumps and falls. So, for these kids, an OT might might recommend yoga or mindfulness training. And again, you want to make sure that if you're incorporating any of these any of these other practices into your ABA. Treatment protocol that it is based on an OT recommendations because I know that we are very specific about only using evidence based practice. So, if an OT says, Hey, yoga in the morning is going to improve his behavior during his homeschooling routine, then okay, we can incorporate that into our practice. However, we want to make sure that it is only because it's coming directly from OT's recommendations and we are only helping the family follow through with those recommendations. Not necessarily that it's something we have recommended and we are writing into our treatment plan. I will say I have a 13, 14 year old now who does yoga before homeschool and it has made a world of a difference. And that just came from recommendations from other professionals. So no more token system. We don't have to do all of the behavioral kind of strategies and systems that were in place before. As long as we do that 20 or 30 minutes of yoga in the morning, it's been unbelievable. That can work with some kids. Obviously, it's not going to work with all of your kids. And you really want to follow those OT recommendations. Yeah, great point. Um, So gravity and balance is our next uh, system and it's called the vestibular system. I know some of these are going to be new vocabulary, but just stick with me, listeners. I'm I'm going to get you. <laughs> so signs of a possible possible problem with your vestibular system: kids could have difficulty sitting still during seated tasks. They could just have frequent movement in general, which I think a lot of our kids do. Um, they might be rocking consistently and frequently in kind of a rhythmical way while they're sitting or standing. They might uh, crave spinning or swinging. Um, I had a roommate once in college who used to stand on one foot. Just anywhere she was, she would stand on one foot. And I think that, that constant, you know, making sure that she was balanced gave her the input she needed to be able to do whatever it was that she was doing while just standing, because apparently just standing didn't give her enough input. She figured out a way to make it functional for her. So these kids might also really like being upside down sitting on the sofa upside down. I know some of our kids will sit on the on the couch on their head with their, their <laughs> legs flipped over onto the back of the couch or onto the seat of the couch. Um, or they might really dislike elevators or escalators. My little ones were terrified of elevators or escalators when they were young. So that could also be involved in the vestibular system. So things that an OT might recommend to address these Differences. They might recommend jumping on a trampoline, swinging in a rhythmical motion that will help kind of align the body and get the body into a really good rhythmical state of regulation. Log rolling across the floor is a good one. And then even just spinning circles in an office chair. If we have a kid who's a sensory seeker or sensory craver and they just need more input, you can sit them down in mom or dad's office chair and just spin them around for a while. And then when they're kind of feeling ready, try your tasks again or try whatever it is that you had out for them and see if that impacts their attention and focus.
1: And the office chair is a great suggestion because that's age appropriate. You know, you could do that when you're 20, 25 and right. it's not it's not weird looking. You know, it's 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 something that's easily accessible. There's office chairs everywhere.
2: Right? I always talk to my staff and my families about incorporating things that are not socially mediated. So we want to do things that If an OT has given us these recommendations, we're going to try it because these are things that that child can grow up with and continue to incorporate into their daily life as long as they live without us being there to give them tokens and stickers and give them a reward at the end of the day. So, yes, absolutely. So the last one is our sense of movement and our position in space. This is the proprioceptive system. So this is input from the muscles and joints about our body's position and the movement of body parts. So this would be deep pressure that tells us where our body is in space. Some of our kids and and Corey and Emily, my fabulous mentors, used to do this trick where they would tell me to close my eyes and then they would move my, my arms all over the place and they would say, okay, which arm is higher? And kids and adults who don't have this proprioceptive system input, if they're not processing that input as well, they're not gonna know where their arms are because they can't really feel where their body is in space. This is one of my kids as well. He has to look at his look at his arms to see if it's higher or lower. So our also our muscles are going to use graded movements to tell us um, different information about how we're going to use our bodies in different ways. This might be where if I need to pick up a cup of hot coffee, I'm going to use a really slow movement. But if I need to pick up just a pencil and leave really quickly, I can use a very fast movement and my body can regulate how those movements are going to play out. Um, the proprioceptive system is the most important system in keeping the body regulated. So Again, it's one of the ones that we don't really know a lot about as therapists outside of the OT field necessarily because we're just not trained on it, but it's the most important system in keeping the body re- body regulated and thus behaviors regulated. So signs of a possible problem could be the child is clumsy, they're bumping into objects, they might be spilling things a lot because they they don't have that good graded movement if they're holding a cup, they might have poor motor planning, they might be chewing or mouthing objects, that's you're seeing that in throughout, Um, or they might be writing too hard or too light. And some of these kids play really really rough and aggressive. So for an OT recommendations, they might recommend body socks where you kind of crawl into it and it's made of some sort of lycra material. Um, They are completely aversive to me, but I know a lot of my (laughs) therapist friends who love them. Um, They might do log rolling across the floor. They might wrap the child or even an adult wrap up in a burrito blanket um, they might try jumping on a trampoline or any other kind of weighted items. And there's a lot more recommendations in science of a possible problem for each of these sensory systems on the document that we'll upload as well.
1: Yeah. Thank you again for sharing that. Cause it's, you know, it's so helpful to hear you explain them all, but I know like for me, I, you know, you want to have it written down so you can reference it later and utilize it as a tool. So thank you for for giving such great te- detail, but also for sharing a PDF as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's so important. And there's so many different factors that can come into play with our kids that we're we're trying to process, we're trying to take into consideration all at once while also just looking at what is the behavior? Because that's our job, that's our part of the field of working with the child. So so it's really nice to have those. Um, just list it out. And again, there could be a million others. These are just the ones that are most frequent, and most prevalent, or the things that might be most obvious to someone like me who is untrained in the field of OT to, to recognize in my own clients.
1: And it's really just kind of like we've talked about earlier. It's it's a shift in mindset that's going to just get you thinking about behavior in a different way.
2: Absolutely. So at the end of the day, the bottom line about sensory processing and you know how all of this fits is that sensory integration is the foundation of our kids' development. And that includes the areas of development that we address in ABA. I feel like it's our job not only to be aware of sensory processing and sensory differences, but really to seek out that collaboration with an OT if we see these things going on. And not only that, but a child's ability to integrate all of the information that's coming into their systems throughout the day, which is a lot of different things, it really helps them feel balanced and in control. And that is every therapist's and every teacher's and every parent's dream for their kids. is for their kids to feel in control and balanced and in the therapy world, you know, quote, regulated. That's what we all want for our kids at the end of the day.
1: Yes. It's so, And it's great to see that simple kind of common goal amongst clinicians where sometimes it can be, you know, there can be some conflict between differences in opinion on what's the most important in this and that. But yeah, at the end of the day, everyone at that table is going to agree. We want that child
2: to feel balanced, to feel regulated. Absolutely. So ultimately, if we're going to address behaviors in children who have a diagnosed sensory processing disorder or just sensory differences that either they're already being treated for by an OT or that you're starting to notice, because as we're kind of going through the process of learning ourselves, we do start to notice sensory differences in our kids. If we're gonna address behaviors in these kids, one, we have to make sure that we're doing all that we can to support their sensory systems. And like I've said in this podcast, and I know a million times with my staff and families, collaboration with OTs is key. If we're not aware of the sensory factors that are influencing this particular child's behavior, we're missing a big piece of the puzzle. We're not seeing that whole child and we're not addressing all of the things that could really, really be impacting that child's behavior. Now, again, our job is not to be OTs, but at the end of the day, if we can educate ourselves and be aware of these sensory aspects of behavior, our treatment and intervention in the field of ABA will have the absolute best chance of success.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh, I love all of this. Thank you so much. This was um, really interesting. You know, we have a blogger on our team that's an OT who's amazing, and I like like a like a fan girl. Like, look forward to her posts because I always <laughs> learn so much. You know, she went through and did different posts on each of these sensory systems, and it was so interesting to read about it. And, you know, I'm coming from a perspective of a teacher and a BCBA. So it's great to kind of hear someone talk about how, you know, all of these things can work together and, you know, our increased knowledge in this area is just going to make us a better clinician or parent or teacher. Absolutely. Um, And I'll be sharing all of Megan's resources in the show notes. so You can do your own research and learn more since, you know, I'm sure we only like got to the very, very, you know, first level of everything, um, and, and kind of dig deeper. And also, I'll be sharing Megan's PDF that goes into the eight senses with kind of the possible problems and potential recommendations.
2: Uh, yes. Now, in our resources, I tried to include books that are for parents, for therapists. There are also some that are really, really good checklists for teachers. I included a website that has a lot of that research based information. I know I have got a lot of researchers listening, um, especially in our field of ABA. There's another podcast that's really specific to. Um, sensory and occupational therapy. And then a really good Instagram account if you just need that quick fix and you're going through Instagram and you think, you know, I think I'm going to make this a little bit more productive time. Um, So there's a good Instagram account on our resources page as well. I love that. Look at that differentiation
1: right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Megan, so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing, you know, all about this topic that you're so passionate about. So thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you. This has been so fun.
1: You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.